Okay. There's nothing off limits. Okay, well, if there is anything, just let us know. We'll There's nothing. Okay, if something happens. <laughs> In fact, the more off limits, the better. Nice. Okay. All right, here we go. This is TGE, the podcast, episode 41 or 42. We're going to find out. Depending on how things are going, there might be another episode in front of it. It's a very special episode because today we are having a special guest. It's Roger Nygaard. More of an interloper, I think. There we go. <laughs> and I'm also here with Tyler. Hello, Sven. And thank you to everyone for listening to the show. We appreciate you telling your friends about it. We enjoy the growing listens every week. And if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts. We're all sitting in my bay and we're really excited to be having this podcast and talk a little bit about Roger's path and I'm having bay jealousy. I love this. This is a really nice setup you've got here. Oh, nice. Yeah. No. I've... In the guest house, to have your your own editing space. It's great. I want to change the color up a little bit. The, the, the yellow doesn't work for like YouTube videos. I thought it's a real nice warm color, but now <laughs> it's uh... that you can change. That's easy to change in post. Very good. <laughs> so, Roger, welcome. And thank you so much for coming. Why Why are you here? I'm going yeah, to ask you. Yeah, that's what happens. Your own fault. You talk about somebody, he might show up. It's a danger. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which we, we have to apologize again because we didn't specifically talk. We're so bad about naming the editors... <laughs> on this pod, which is so weird because the whole thing is paying tribute to the editing. And we even said it in that episode and then didn't say your name. So Roger is the editor <laughs> of Beep. And he listened to our, a couple of weeks ago, our episode about the breakdown of a specific scene. And then you were kind enough to send us an email and say, hey, if you want any of the inside knowledge, I'm happy to talk about it. So thank yeah, you. You asked some questions as you were going through. I, I did. Said, I know the answers to those questions. I did. Before we get to those answers, I'd love to know a little bit about you. Like, what's your journey? I know you had a documentary early on in your career, and you're still kind of a documentary filmmaker on the side, but you're also working as the editor on Curb Your Enthusiasm and some other projects. So maybe just walk us through your journey up to this point. Here's the, the quick, the Reader's Digest version of my career. I've been making films since I was seven when I found my dad's eight millimeter camera and I, I can't hire someone to edit. So I <laughs> edit my own projects. And then when I got to high school, I graduated to super eight, went to college, graduated to video, moved out to Los Angeles to seek my fortune as a filmmaker and made some indie films and edited my own films. Uh, during that time, I would do film festivals and one of my films was seen by a filmmaker named Mike Binder. Oh, wow. He saw a film called Suckers, okay, which is a dramatic comedy about car salesmen, and he liked the editing style. Particularly, it stood mm -hmm. out to him, and so he offered me a job editing a pilot that he was doing for an HBO series called The Mind, Mind of, of the, the Married, Married Man. Man. Yeah, yeah. That was my first pro gig, really editing for someone else. So uh, before that, I was just doing my own work. Hadn't really intended or planned to become an editor for hire, and since then, the offers just have kept coming. It's the most consistent offers I get are in editing, although I do write, produce, and direct as well as edit. Mm -hmm. And particularly, now I'm moving into documentaries primarily. Yeah, and you're working on some cool ones. All my documentaries are topics or ideas that, that intrigue me or I become obsessed with. So it's almost like therapy to, for me to go and take a camera, have a question, like my my prior documentary is called The Nature of Existence. Mm -hmm. And my core question was, why do we exist? So I set out to solve that mystery and, and I, to, by finding people and interrogating them and making them explain why we're here, what's what's the point? And then I got all this footage, and, and so now it's a real editor's challenge to find a narrative thread and to coalesce all that into a 90-minute documentary, which is impossible uh, the, uh, existentialism how do you make a documentary <laughs> about existentialism in 90 minutes but that's what intrigued me was the impossibility of it and that's what i do i guess now and my current film which hasn't come out yet it'll be coming out this year it's called the truth about marriage and my core question in that film the mystery i'm solving is why is it so hard for people to be married so I, I, once again, set out with my cameras, went to psychologists and therapists and uh, marital therapists, uh, anthropologists, everyday people, various experts, and interrogated them all. And, and on the one hand, if I bring a camera 
and I sit down with a psychologist for two or three hours and ask that person these questions that are bothering me, by the end of the session, I've learned so much and feel so much better, and there's no charge because I brought a camera. <laughs> it's free therapy. Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm collecting all this footage and solving this question, <laughs> this mystery. And I take it you're married. I, it's a single guy pontificating about marriage, which is also, I guess, is part of my theme. If I look back in the history of all my documentaries, I'm always an outsider okay. looking in on a topic. And was it you that, it. that pushed the Larry David character to become divorced? And <laughs> <laughs> he follows his story follows his actual life, so naturally people become divorced. Fifty percent, wow, give or take, go down that path, and Larry was no exception to that statistic. And so the show followed his his personal journey. Before we get to Curb, I wanted to ask you: one of your early films was Trekkies. My first documentary. Your first documentary. Yeah. I have to say, I was at the premiere, actually, which was like a small theater in Hollywood, wow, if I remember kidding. correctly. And I was working as a journalist interviewing uh, William <laughs> Chetner that night. So how did that, how did you get into that? <laughs> were you also an outsider getting into the documentary there? Or is this something that you were, um, were you part of that subculture? I was an outsider. Okay. I'm not a Star Trek, I'm not a Trekkie per se. I'm a science fiction fan. I'm a, I'm a fan of great stories and great movies well told. Mm-hmm. Sci-fi being one of the genre. I love genre. I love that genre because my dad loved science fiction. So I'd watch movies with him. I'd watch Hitchcock movies with my mom and then great old sci-fi movies with my dad. And that always stuck with me. As I grew up, I met Star Trek fans and thought they were amazing and mm-hmm. hilarious and, and they're so obsessive about what they do. And I thought this could make a documentary. Yeah. And actually, the credit goes to Denise Crosby. It was her idea to make a documentary about Star Trek fans. She pitched the idea to me. Okay. Because she had been, I'd cast her in my first feature, which is called High Strung. Mm-hmm. It was a comedy about a guy in a room complaining about everything, uh, starring Steve Odekirk. Right. And she was in it. Mm. And written by Steve Unkirk. Yeah. Who's a legendary comedy writer, Ace Ventura. That's correct. And yeah. did he do Bruce Almighty as well? He did. He wrote it. And Patch Adams. Was... Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Neutron. So he's had quite a career since then. That was his first, actually his second feature that he wrote. And, wow. Um, and my first feature, I read the script and said, hey, if I can raise the money, will you let me direct it? And I did. And he, he said, yes, and we did. And so Denise, we cast as one of the characters, and I stayed friendly with Denise Crosby. And two mm-hmm. or three years later, she said, I've been doing these Star Trek conventions. Someone should do a documentary about this. And I said, I can't believe no one's done it. It's, of course, it's so obvious. Right. So we did. And the, once you make a documentary, it's like, oh, just what's the problem with one trying heroin once? <laughs> you know, there's no once. You get addicted to it. It's such... Uh, an exciting journey to make a documentary yeah. what is it about documentaries like specifically maybe also in terms of editing them that makes it so much fun like as a storyteller because it's a journey and mm-hmm. you don't know where you're going to end up when you mm-hmm. are filming or editing a narrative where the screenplay has been written you already have the best version in your mind and you try to achieve it by filming it mm-hmm. and you're trying to reach this goal whereas with a documentary it's all fresh. Every interview is, it's, it's a, the journey changes a little bit. And it's mm-hmm. the whole time, anything can happen. It's, I love fishing. I go fishing every summer up in Canada. And it's like right. every cast, this could be the one. And you hook something, it's like a soundbite, got a soundbite. <laughs> and right. it's exciting. And you reel it in, you get it in the net, and you got it on, you know, on film or on tape. And, you, and you, it's about collecting moments and soundbites that you can then mold into something that's engaging yeah. for 90 minutes. Yeah. yeah. And any of those catches could change the direction of it entirely and does yeah Yeah. or 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 areas oh this isn't as exciting as i thought or this isn't it's just not developing or it's not it's got to be intriguing enough to hold your attention for years yeah Mm -hmm. and how important is the editing in documentary compared to like narrative or script it's everything because you're writing the script in the editing Mm -hmm. room so i think a good editor no matter what genre you're working in it you have to be a writer as well I mean, it's an old saying that the editing is the last re- rewrite of the screenplay. Right. And so you have to b- come with ideas. A lot of editors, I mean, there's a couple of paths, many paths you can follow to be an editor. And many of them, they, they apprentice, they learn how to use the equipment in school, they apprentice, and they move up. And I've worked with them, and I will say to my assistant, hey, have you seen Gone with the Wind? No, what's that? 
It's like, how can you be a, an editor and not have seen right. the greatest movie? You you should be devouring them on all, during all your off time because mm-hmm. there's a limitless supply of four star movies in the history, and you need to see all of them or devour as many as possible. Yeah. I mean, Quentin Tarantino is a filmmaker who devours everything, and what he regurgitates in his own style right. is unique. Exactly. But it's because he's absorbed the language of filmmaking, and so an editor, especially, maybe more so than anyone aside from the writer, hmm. and maybe the director sometimes, although that's questionable. Yeah, has to be a filmmaker, a storyteller, who can fix the script. You have to have ideas, and you have to understand structure. Mm-hmm. And I've had book editors tell me that what they do, it's almost exactly the same as an editor. They're hmm. trying to, you're trying to condense everything hmm. to the most, to the most con- concise version because brevity, right? Good writing is con- concise writing and good editing is concise editing. Mm-hmm. You want to get there in the shortest trip possible in whatever, whether it's Veep or Curb Your Enthusiasm or The League. Part of what I do is identify the setup and then the punchline, and then I eliminate everything between those two to get you to the punchline as quickly as possible. Because mm-hmm. particularly in Veep and Curb, they'll do tangents. And the tangents, as funny as they may be, will diminish the, the uh, landing of the punchline. Mm-hmm. So I'm cleaning out all that word baggage and the pauses and the diversions and making sure the setup is clear and it's as close to the punchline as possible. And good writing is the same. Mm-hmm. And these tangents on those shows are those tangents in the writing or are they more just because of the nature of the improvisation both sometimes they'll write things it's overwritten these shows are way overwritten mm-hmm. and so i'm throwing stuff out all the time getting rid of things it, it takes a discipline to not overwrite mm-hmm. <laughs> it's easier to overwrite and then f- worry about it in the editing room than it is to get disciplined in the writing stage how long is the script they're 50 or 60 pages for a half hour okay. show. Yeah. So and if, first wow. cuts are 45 minutes to but 55 minutes. Is that in sitcom formatting where it's like double spaced for everything or is that traditional formatting? Traditional formatting. Oh, wow. So is that part of the process to overwrite it like that in embracing the editing process? Knowing... It's a lack of discipline. Oh, see. So uh-huh. <laughs> C- comedians have no discipline. Right. Otherwise, they have a regular job. Right. If you can go tell jokes on a stage for 20 minutes a night, and the rest of the 23 hours you have to yourself, you, you, that's a pretty easy job. You, you got to come up with funny stuff, of course, and uh-huh. they're brilliant at that. But having discipline is not something that writers are known for. I guess I guess you. that's a great point. But it makes me curious. So some of the writers you're working, the comedians you're working with, like Larry, da- Larry David, Dave Mandel, right? Both obviously worked on Seinfeld. And I would think with that, and Mike Binder's a comedian too, but I would think that that requires a little more discipline for networks. I would wonder like where they lost that. Like it just doesn't seem like Seinfeld, like editing is where things would happen because you're taping in front of a live audience. And so do you think they just, they just abandoned, like (laughs) once the network was gone, they were like, woohoo, or. Well, they're sort of all like five-year-olds. They never quite grow up. And a five-year-old with constraints will stay within the constraints. But if you slowly remove the constraints, that five-year-old is going to get into everything. Okay. And they, the constraints have been removed over time because of peak television. There's so many shows, mm-hmm. a lot of which now no longer have the 23-minute the requirement, 23-and-a-half-minute, 22-minute, mm. 24, whatever, depending on the show, yeah. where they've got to hit their commercial breaks and they've got to fit, the, the, the acts have to be a certain length. Right. Once you start to remove those things... Their playtime will, it's like someone's income will, you know, expenditures will rise to meet their income. <laughs> yeah. Their writing rises to meet the the volume available. Mm-hmm. And so the episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm are coming in over 30 minutes and 30 and 40 minutes. Right, right. Yeah, especially this last season. Yeah. And um, how much, if you know, how much time do they have? Are they in a time crunch when they write these scripts? Or is there plenty of time to figure it all out in the writing? and then they go off shooting? Or is it like, we just got to get this done, and then we'll figure it out later? It varies. With Curb Your yeah. Enthusiasm, Larry takes, takes a year. Okay. He takes as much time as he needs. And HBO says, you're welcome, you know, thank you, and, you know, whatever. Just deliver episodes when you're ready. Yeah. It 
partly depends on when you start the production because what they end up doing is having to finish in time for Emmy Award consideration, mm-hmm. and then they back time from that. Hmm. So in order to to deliver episodes in time to get to the critics, you've got to be shooting by here and delivering by here, mm-hmm. and then that forces a schedule onto the creative element, which these five year olds who want to play everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And they but they also want awards. <laughs> so, <laughs> So to get the awards, they've got to play within the rules. Nice. Yeah. And with Veep, we've been in crazy schedules to meet our deadlines. It seems like very much more tightly run scheduling-wise, that show, than obviously Curbs, like the outlier. Which which kind of brings me to my question about your, your take on it as an editor, having worked on like the best of the best comedy being made, do you think, sort of like you're talking about fishing for ideas in a documentary... Obviously, that's going to make it better, like the more fish you cast for. Do you think that that process in some way makes the end result better, that they're embracing like that editing will be used? Or do you think it's like, just dial it in, do what you guys did on Seinfeld, please. <laughs> it makes it easier for everyone. Like, which do you think ends up with a, a better result? Each ends up with a great result. Mm-hmm. And they're both great results. You, with one, you get, a, you get different results. Seinfeld had a stringent format Mm -hmm. and had a certain type of network result. The type of moments you get on Curb Your Enthusiasm, you really couldn't get any other way. You have to let them go play in the sandbox Mm -hmm. and see what happens. Does Apatow fit that mold when you're working on Crashing, or what's what's the take on that show? Depends on how scripted, and those, Crashing was scripted, but, and Veep is scripted, but Mm -hmm. what they do is a lot of alt lines, Gotcha. While they're shooting, they'll try, maybe this is funnier, or that's funnier, and so you get all sorts of attempts at funnier punchlines that you can't think up sitting in a room the way you can when you're shooting, and you're in the environment, and you're forced to come up with stuff, and, it, and you're forced to focus. It's really mm-hmm. forcing them to focus. <laughs> Deadlines are great for creativity. Right, and seeing what Jonah looks like on set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the actors bring things. They'll bring something, and you and the location brings something. Mm-hmm. On Curb, from take one to take seven, where they finish, it's usually vastly different. Mm-hmm. Right, because Larry, who with ever whomever he's working, will find the funny. They'll find what's funny about that situation, mm-hmm. and finally arrive there and once they arrive there they know they can move on because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it works it finally there's an ending or whatever the nugget is the, the seed has finally bloomed right. you know sitcom stands for situation comedy and all that they do is come up with funny situations mm-hmm. and then put two people in them to have conflict in this situation two funny people and then out of it comes this wealth of material then i as the editor get to sort through and pick what makes me laugh and then present it to Larry David and Jeff Schaefer mm-hmm, right. this season. Typically, what Larry's a little different. What he wants to do is he'll, he'll watch the, all the dailies with you, spend a week going through all the dailies mm-hmm. after looking at your editor's cut and say, try getting this in and that. Maybe I'll switch this joke in and he'll give you a bunch of things that he liked that you'll know to going through the transcripts. So then you jam, try and jam as much of that into an even fatter cut. Gotcha. And the rest of the time is spent getting it down to time or a final cut. Right. And the editing happens here in Los Angeles? Yes. Okay. And so what does the schedule look like for Curb Your Enthusiasm? I would assume it's very different from Veep in terms of it's just very stretched out, is that? It's pretty stretched out because that's the process that Larry David uses. Okay. It suits him. He, it's he, he's the vision. Yeah. So mm-hmm. everything follows his process. Jeff Schaefer on The League, for instance. Who uh, also started with Dave Mandel on, on Seinfeld, Seinfeld, which is obviously yeah. Larry David and Seinfeld show. He's a little more energetic in terms of moving quickly, and he'll work all weekends. He'll work seven days a week. Larry's going to work five days a week. Jeff would work seven days a week and, and, and often does. He'll have, like on The League, the editors would stagger their weeks. So there's always somebody working on a Saturday or a Sunday. Mm-hmm. So when Jeff comes in, he's got someone to work with. Mm-hmm. He never stops working. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then on Curb this season, how many editors are? Two. Two editors. Yeah. Wow. There'll be three, actually, because I'm replacing someone who's leaving. Okay. Uh, I was, my 
time on Veep overlapped, and so I started on Veep, and someone else started on Curb, but he has to leave to go work on something else, the second editor. Steve Rash, who's been there since the beginning, will have been there for the right. whole run. Okay. And you came in season seven? Is I was right? did three seasons, so uh, six, seven, and eight. I did, yes. Wow. And how many episodes this new, the latest season? Ten, se ten, ten episodes per season. So season. one editor will have five, and then you'll be splitting the other five with the editor that you're replacing? Yes. Okay. And then how does that work? Like, when do you start with the first episode? Do you completely finish it before you move on? What's that schedule like? Mm. Yes, it's about three weeks to a month per episode. Okay. Finishing a cut and then presenting that to Larry and Jeff. And then they'll get to it in sequence as well. Okay. And maybe they're working on one and two kind of simultaneously and hopping back and forth. And then they'll work on three and four mm -hmm. and move back and forth and give notes. But now that show, is it... Because I know usually with network shows, they're kind of rolling out and the showrunner is writing episode 10 while editing episode two. Is that the case with Curb or do they have more luxury where it's shot, it's done and... Now we're just focusing on the editing. Or Veep as well. Veep they're writing while shooting. Okay. And taking hiatus weeks during the shooting schedule to continue writing. Wow. But on Curb Your Enthusiasm, they've written all 10 before they start normally. Larry will start... At some point, Larry will get bored not working or doing what he's doing. He'll right. decide, okay, it's time <laughs> to start doing another season. Yeah. So he'll start writing. And recently, it's been he's been writing with Jeff Schaefer. Very cool. One, one season he wrote with uh, Jerry Seinfeld. You know, it was the Seinfeld reunion season. Oh, okay. So he was on that whole season. And wow. Jeff Schaefer and Alec Berg and Dave Mandel were three partners who all were co-writers and producers who worked on those seasons. Yeah, and Berg's now doing Silicon Valley and, and Barry, Barry as well at the same yeah. time. Yeah. So what does Jer that script look like? Is it a treatment or is it an actual? It's a treatment. Okay. So they'll start writing. Larry will start writing with whomever. And once he gets five or six of them written, then he'll call HBO. The HBO won't even be involved. He'll call them up and say, I guess I'll do another season. And they go, thank you. And, <laughs> and then he'll finish the 10. And their outlines with a, maybe a paragraph or two or three lines per scene, mm -hmm. which sets up the situation. Mm -hmm. Larry, no dialogue ever. There might be some dialogue suggestions in that paragraph. Okay. And sometimes they use them and sometimes they don't. Uh, so I've seen them where they didn't use anything that was suggested. They went in a different direction mm -hmm. once they got there. Yeah. But the situation stays. Right. You can't improvise story. Hmm. You can only improvise dialogue. And allegedly bad improvising is creating story. Yeah. And you'll see the mistakes in the shows that tried to do the Curb style where they didn't quite get that. Mm -hmm. They didn't realize that. So Larry spends a long time working on the story with Jeff Schaefer, and the same with the league. Jeff Schaefer was writing story mm -hmm. before shooting. And sometimes it's just coming up with Larry decides he wants an ice cream cone, and there's somebody in front of him taking too many samples. And so this, the question is, how many is too many samples before it's socially wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and then our guy, right. Jeff likes to call Larry our guy. Right. Our guy now, who's kind of the social crusader, has to fight for us and stand up for, that's too many samples. So the situation is set, and now with a funny comedic improviser, they go at it. And they cast people based on who will argue with Larry. Who will mm -hmm. give it back to him? Right. Uh -huh. Okay, so then they shoot that scene. And you said they go like nine times or however many times. Maybe as few as three, maybe as many as 11, but let's say five, six, seven times and until they, till they get it. Till they how many cameras? So the last, two to three. Okay. Two to three cameras. So the last one is probably pretty different from the first one. Yes. How do you deal with that in the editing? Do you just cut the last one? Do you still mix and match? How does that work? And if you notice a, a trend that suddenly reveals like, I'm just going straight to four. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I have a process now. I'm going to have to put this in my book. I start at the end and I'll take the last take because they probably arrived at something. Hmm. And I will cut a version of the scene with that take. It's funny you picked the first uh first scene in this last season of veep to talk about because i have ta i taught a class recently and used that same scene mm -hmm. cool. to dissect for the students 
how to edit a scene. And I told them the same thing. I and, and I showed them five versions of the scene. I said, here's my first cut. It's only with the last take. Mm. Huh. And and there's four cameras to choose from there on that show. And uh, so it's wow. plenty of coverage. I could basically cut a working version of the scene from mm. the last take. Now, after that's done, that's maybe a series of closer setups or a series of wider setups, depending which last take. Because there's usually two main passes where they'll do a pass with wider coverage and then a pass with closer coverage and then a final pass with super wide coverage mm. where mm-hmm. normally with typical coverage they shoot the master the super wide and then go in for tighter coverage yeah hmm. and dave mandel developed a process where he saves his master for the end because we found we couldn't use it gotcha yep. that makes sense because it was the early take with nothing good there's nothing good in it yeah and so he wanted more wide shots because there's more comedy in a wide shot because you can see more body language. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So I would take the last best multi-camera shot, cut a version of the scene, then start working my way backwards, looking for ways to beat what I've got. Mm-hmm. Since I already know what I've got, if something doesn't beat it, I won't waste my time cutting it in. Mm-hmm. If I use the first take to do this, I'd be replacing everything and spend far more time than necessary putting a scene together mm-hmm. and then in terms of the first cut how long it is and how long the final scene is is it like half the length or well my first cut i, t- I like to give them a kitchen sink cut yeah jeff schaefer particularly likes to see everything and dave mandel likes to see everything include mm-hmm. them in the process i don't want to cut jokes or story points before they see it okay mm-hmm. my my goal is to make here's everything they shot in the best version of a scene with everything. Then they'll cut it down. Mm-hmm. And so my first cut of the scene, you looked at, for instance, the first scene of this last season of Veep, is probably six minutes long. And then by the time Dave Mandel gets done with it, it was half that length, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. He cuts ha- you know, cut out half of it. And a lot of which I knew was going to go away. Yeah. But he needs to see it. He needs to, to do it. Yeah. Which means that that first cut they see is probably not working all that well. Not nearly as well as it could, yes. And which can be quite scary for the editor to show something that you know it's going to be better, but you, you feel like you can't fix it yet. You have to include them in the process. Yeah, everybody, typically everybody, when I worked on Grey's Anatomy, you couldn't cut anything out. Yeah. No, don't cut a word out of the script and in fact if an actor uses a word different from what's scripted use the take where they use the scripted word okay they want the actors to just recreate the words they've written right and so my job was to make the cut as close to the script as possible unless so they can see it what do you prefer as an editor if i'm if i'm my own showrunner or my own if i'm the director then i'm going to cut it the best version possible but even that's going to be too fat Mm -hmm. yeah Everything is too long. Whenever someone asks me, hey, will you look at a cut of my film? I say, great, it's too long. You haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I know, but I can tell you right now, it's too long. <laughs> it's always too long. You've left in all these things that you shouldn't have. Yeah. That don't, that, that are, maybe are great, but they're harming the overall impact. And, and I was kind of curious, I mean, I guess to me, it's kind of obvious as a fan, which, which is probably more rewarding. But as an editor working for someone else, do you prefer where it's like, all right, we're sticking to script, or I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> there is no script. Life is so much easier when the script is well written, and and mm-hmm. you don't have to find the fix the mistakes. Right. It's you, it's just you go home earlier, mm. right, <laughs> and, <laughs> and less frustrated. So you probably find yourself in a situation where you're always like blessed with the script and the performances, and and that makes your life a lot easier. Well, the performances on Veep, for instance, the cast is a plus. Yeah. So everybody's stellar, mm. and all their takes are generally great yeah nobody's giving you a bad take right from any of these actors but there are some shows and movies i've worked on where you know there's always one you got to build a performance <laughs> mm. out of someone i mean there was one actor in a, a, a movie i did with mike binder called black or white oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. kevin costner right costner yeah mm-hmm. there's an actor in there and i had to build a performance the the dailies were all over the place mm-hmm. but the result is amazing because mm-hmm. the pieces were there right. and a lot of good work came from that yeah. show piece. But if they had seen the dailies, they would have, next. Right. 
Yeah, let's let's explain this term build a performance because I think that's really that's one of those powerful invisible tools that an editor has that usually you don't get credit for after the fact. But if you could elaborate on what that means. Let me give you an example. When I was working on The Mind of the Married Man, there was one actor who I became friends with. His name is Doug Williams. Mm-hmm. And he's actually in my marriage documentary. Okay. And he was doing this thing that was costing him screen time. So I invited him into the editing room. I said, Doug, let me show you something. So he came in and I, I, I showed him one of his performances. Mm-hmm. And what was happening was he was putting in these long pauses because he was getting dramatic and actors when they get dramatic they pause right lots of pauses just (laughs) hammy long dramatic pauses Mm. and i said every time you do that i have to cut away from your face in order to get rid of the pause so you want more screen time and i want to give you more screen time so pull out the pauses get through the sentence without stopping and then i can stay on you i'll stay on your face without having to go to a reaction of somebody else. Mm. And it was like he had no idea. Actors have no idea. They'll look at something, look at a final product and go, wow, I'm pretty good. <laughs> Having no idea how many pauses and ums mm. and you knows and mispronunciations. Right. I hate, I mean, I personally, everyone has pet peeves, right? One of my pet peeves is mispronouncing words like asterisk. Mm. <laughs> if an actor says asterisk, I just want to pull my hair out. No, it's asterisk. I that's what it was. <laughs> Plus, you would drive me crazy. I won't, I won't say Good it. to know. <laughs> but I'll go and fix it. I'll find a sk sound and replace a k sound yeah. and mm-hmm. make them grammatically correct. Yeah. yeah. Which is another invisible thing is that editors can cheat. They can put words in that they didn't speak in All that the time. Tape. I don't know. What do you call it? I call it line stuffing. Lines. Okay. Frankenbites. Yeah, Frankenbite. That's a good yeah. one. So, but I think in this, there's a really good lesson to actors and just for people listening that shoot your own stuff and edit your own stuff because you learn so much. You'll be able about to become a much actor. better actor if you do that. Yeah, and that's a very different thing than having to look at Video Village, which could get you in your head or something like that. But actually, just for the ex- maybe you might find out you like editing. Like, go shoot something and, and cut it together, and I promise you'll get better. Yeah. whatever you want to do. You can use your iPhone now as a camera Yeah, with sound, and everybody's got an editing system. Of <laughs> In the same movie, phone, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. There's no reason not to. That's a, I mean, that's a unique situation where you get to talk to the actor and show him it in the editing room. That usually doesn't happen. So that's, that's very fortunate. Before we get into the Veep thing, because I want to like look at that scene that we discussed and see if we got it right or not. <laughs> um, maybe we'll just finish off on Curb because that's where we were. Um, so we, you have, you said like five weeks to present your cut and then... Between three, four, give or take. However long, they've gotten longer, so it's taken longer, but okay. yes. And then they spend another two weeks on it and then it goes to HBO or how does About that work? About a week for Larry to look through all the dailies. Okay. And then a week or so doing a cut down. Does and he... eventually they'll get to a producer's cut number one. Okay. Which will go to the network. There's no notes from the network to Larry <laughs> David. Nobody gives Larry David notes. Yeah. He's beyond that. He's Have they ever tried or this just went away once the show? It went away at some point. Okay. Well, does Curb have directors on the episodes? Yes. So is that's at what point does David step into that process? Some directors come in and they'll do a director's cut. Uh-huh. And some don't show up at all. Is it a union show? Yes. Okay, so there would be a director's. They have the option. Yeah. yeah, they're getting paid for it. But it, but it's Larry's show, and this. Right. They know that, and some their time is valuable, and they don't waste their time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> going in and wasting their time on something on Veep, the same thing. Some directors will come in. Some will send in handwritten. We'll just type up some notes, and some didn't bother at all. But which is which isn't uncommon just in television in general. Like the showrunner has all the power, the writer. Yeah. yeah. But. Jeff Schaefer does direct a lot of Curb episodes. Or am I yes. imagining that? Yeah, so it's the writing team does a lot of that. So Yeah, and it's changed because because they're using multiple cameras now. Mm-hmm. The DP becomes in charge of coverage in, to an extent that he didn't used to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the director can focus on the lines and the actors uh-huh. and the story, whereas in the past, they had to focus on coverage. So wait, you just said something very... Or I forget, the show's been on for like 15 years maybe at this point. You said they're using multiple cameras now. So when Curb started, were they doing single cameras? It was called single camera. And you know, they still call it single camera. Right. And they had... I'm not sure because I wasn't there for the first seasons. Mm-hmm. But when I started on season six, they had two cameras. 
Whoa. Occasionally, they'd add a third. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't get by with without three and sometimes four, and that's the norm right. on most shows yeah. that you'd call, quote, single camera. Right. But even but 20 years ago, 15, 10 years ago, single camera was one camera. And it was film at the start. Now, is it digital for Curb? Or well, was Curb it started out as beta. Okay. So it was, yeah, that's right. It never was film. And it didn't go to digital beta until I think season seven. Wow. Did they give it a film look or it just looked no. like video at the beginning? Uh, I think it looked kind of like beta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it definitely, yeah, but thinking back to the, like the pant tent, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's, uh, that was not film, which was part of the fun of it. it. Created the freedom. It was a super low budget first season. Yeah. And they got a, that's one reason they got a pickup is because the budget was so low. Nobody had any expectations for this thing. It was just kind of an experiment. I mean, it, it seems so normal now because it's pervasive. Mm-hmm. The Curb Your Enthusiasm style of filmmaking yeah. and TV making TV shows. But when they started, no one was doing it yet. Mm-hmm. They essentially invented this right. process. Much often imitated, but rarely equaled. Yeah, if in and if equaled only by the people that you know came up in the Larry David system, <laughs> which has been amazing in and of itself, and that you're kind of the connecting tissue editing so much of this stuff. Well, I want to finish up Curb. Um, mm-hmm. So you said it goes to to HBO the first time. How many times? Formality. Yeah. How many times does it go to them? Just that one time, or probably a couple times? once. Okay. I mean. I'll keep track. I'll keep my eye on it <laughs> okay. and let you know. How well, I worked on shows 10. where there were like seven network cuts, where oh, just yeah, that kept won't happen. Going Does that happen on them. other shows? I mean, Veep it goes to network once, okay, mm-hmm. and they'll get notes back. Minimal, they got minimal notes. The same cut would go to Julia, Frank Rich, and HBO mm-hmm. all at the same time. Dave's mm-hmm. cut when Dave would finalize his cut. Yeah. They would all get it at the same time, and, and all their notes would come back, and we'd do them all on the same day. Mm-hmm. Right. And then what about Grey's Anatomy? The net, well, the, they're into the, when I worked on Grey's, it was their 14th season, mm-hmm. and they kind of know what they're doing by season 10, I think. <laughs> right. Um, so, again, it's kind of a formality. But, yeah, we would have a screening for the network executive in charge of the show, she would watch it, and we'd watch it with her. And after the screening was over, she would offer her thoughts. And primarily, they were about the music. She really took a hand in, I like that music, try this, try something else here. Mm-hmm. That, that's what she had a connection to more than anything else. I think rare, rarely were there story notes. Mm-hmm. And that can be alarming sometimes when actors get to give notes. But I think that's, you know, Julia Louise Dreyfus, that's probably a situation where it's, it's great and they're helpful or maybe not. It is. Well, if they know what they're doing, if they have a good instinct mm-hmm. and Julia does. Right. So I never really found any of her notes to be like, oh, that's crazy. You right. Know? And usually how many notes would you get? Would it be 10 notes? Well, it's a day's worth. Okay. You know, so yeah, probably Dave would come in with his handwritten sheets. He's talked to them on the phone. Yeah, mm-hmm. where they gave their notes and he's written them down on pieces of envelopes and he'd turn them over and there's some more here and we'd address them and check them off. Or if it couldn't be done, we didn't do it. Yeah. Or, if, or if we decided that what was there played better in context compared to the request. And then he would explain, we tried it, but couldn't couldn't do it for mm-hmm. this, that, or the other reason. So you don't necessarily have to deal with conflicting notes in that situation, which might be problematic. Dave had final cut, Dave Mandel on Veep. So he decided in a conflict mm-hmm. which note would happen. And everybody went with that because he he brings the awards. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, if you bring the awards, they'll let you do what you want. If you don't bring any awards or, or viewers, you better bring one or the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or both, ideally. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Shall we take a look at the scene? I mean, we don't have to look at it, but let's... Wouldn't hurt to refresh our uh, memories. Okay, good. Well, I have it here on my laptop, so we can take a look at it, actually. That scene, one more time, maybe just a little setup. Do you remember what the scene is about? Well, it has to set up the whole season. The whole gang is back together, and she's on her way to announce her candidacy in Iowa. Nice. So it's basically two different locations. She's inside the jet, and there's Dan and... Amy. Yes. Yes. And so there are a bunch of bystanders waiting for her to arrive at this particular airport in Iowa. Let's take a look. And yeah, just tell us, like, 
Just a little insight on what what have how how did you arrive at this commentary scene? track yeah. live commentary track. Incredible mm. new Selena. Now. Now. Oh, it's perfect. So you got to start with a wide shot, right? And then we we'll go for coverage. This was in a really confined space. It was a very difficult scene to edit, which is one reason I teach editing with this scene. Mm. And it was the first one of the first things shot, so the actors were not on their game. Gotcha. Everyone was a little rusty. Hmm. So the takes were really hard to work with. Hmm. It was a bigger challenge than Amy, normal. are you there? We're all ready for you, ma'am. Hey, sweatpants. You can't just A lot of alt lines here. You can't leave because <laughs> this isn't a spin class. Right. You know, there was, they tried lots of different jokes there, but the Terrence Malick joke yeah, made me laugh, and I'm glad that made it to the final cut. <laughs> so you're the one. That's great. We love that. Yeah. So we got multiple storylines that we're setting up. We talk plenty, Amy. No, not you, ma'am. It's a little difficult to imagine that Selena can't hear her because the phone is so close to her mouth, and that's one of the one of the buys you have to make in this scene. But I love that Selena just doesn't listen, anyways. Like it just kind of fits. That's I think why we get away with it. Yeah, I almost thought it was intentional. I say I want to be president for all Americans. This is a new character, Leon, introduced mm -hmm. as part of the team. How about real? Took Mike's job last season, right? He was on Curb in the the uh, chat and cut. That's right. Scene. Okay, I don't know what she's saying. So here, mm -hmm. The, the this was the way it was scripted, by the way. We didn't steal okay. a, a, a joke, a, a punchline, and move it, which we do often, though. Yeah. We do that technique. Gotcha. But this, it was scripted that she just ignores Amy. Oh, that's great. There was a lot of improv here at the end of that scene that got cut out. Hello! Because it just went on. It was too much. And this is a different plane. Now, this airplane, that uh, is all added. Like, this is all... Almost green screen. Huh. Okay. Widened. The shot was widened mm -hmm. digitally, and that barn was added. It was wow. Burbank. It was Burbank Air or something, oh. <laughs> or Van Nuys Airport. In Cedar Falls, Iowa. Oh. Ma'am, we're in Cedar Rapids. Oh, because they filmed in L.A. this season. Yeah. Oh, right. I forgot. There's a whole <laughs> improv here, too, where uh, Gary goes and retrieves the phone. It's, it's the fifth one this week, and... and uh, that got trimmed, of course. And what, what's his performance like working with in general? Because it's almost like a ninja. This is in the background, sneaking things in. I mean, Tony, Tony Hale? Hale? Yeah. He is so good at what he does. It's phenomenal. <laughs> he's, when we had the rap party, he's the one person I sought out to get a picture with. <laughs> <laughs> out of everybody. Because he's so amazing. And every take is use, useful or mm -hmm. funny or... I, I noticed in a lot of shots, there's a reaction shot that he gives or like a reaction in the background. Is that something like specifically in this scene, he gives like for a microsecond, he's pissed off because the other guy is saying mommy is speaking. That was scripted that he gives a reaction there. Okay. And so I actually wow. missed that on my first cut. And the director said, no, no, you're missing a reaction there. So we went, went oh, yeah, he is doing something. Right. So we held for wow. it. Is a lot of times is that given in the script that his reactions are? They often write Gary reacts, and then he does <laughs> his thing, which yeah. is uh, unexpected and, and funny. Right. Very interesting. So then unique. One of the other things we said is that in terms of the comedy, it felt to me like it's it's cutting it shorter than the traditional setup punchline tag and then beat for a laugh. Yeah, there's no breathing. The characters don't breathe. So that is something that it is different from traditional comedy. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice. There's no you, there's there's no waiting mm -hmm. for the audience. You gotta you gotta keep up. Yeah. On it's a on a show like this. More of like the the bringing up baby model. Yeah. Forties screwball comedies. Yeah, on meth. Are closer right. <laughs> format than traditional sitcoms, where you're a lot of sitcoms are designed for people while they're doing the laundry or having a beer after work and the kids are running around and they leave laugh room and the laugh track is there to remind people this is a funny part yeah. and in case they miss a story point they'll drop it in twice mm -hmm. there's none of that here right it's, we will cut out anything that's repetitious yeah mm. the attempt is to never use the same word twice in a scene mm. much less the same joke in the whole season. If, oh. if he's done a, a riff on a joke before, you know, we did that in season five. Right. We did a joke about that. If it's not substantially different or funny, typically those are marked for cutting. Yeah. And is that a style that evolved or that was like clear from the get-go that that's the style of the show? 
Well, we all looked at Armando's style. Right, that's what I was going to ask, the transition from him to Mandel and if the writing has changed. And there are things that have changed from Armando's style. I know that one of the things that they did was the... It was shot like a fake documentary. So the cameras, when they did a pan, which they call swingles, a swinging single, Mm -hmm. you couldn't pan before the line and anticipate the line. Mm. They had to say the line and then you pan to it. Gotcha. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't feel appropriate for a documentary but that kind of got dropped as time went by when it became more important the priority was is that the funniest version of a line Hmm. if it is technique or visual look gets sacrificed gotcha for comedy as dave mandel said at the rap party something to the effect that i'm a damaged human being all i care about is 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 it fucking funny (laughs) (laughs) and that is what he lives for is how how can this be funnier Right. Mm-hmm. And he had a whole, obviously a whole writer's room, Mandel did. Did Armando have that? Or is it more the British style of just he was writing all the episodes? Not having been there, I can't tell you for sure. Gotcha. All I know is what happened here. And I think the joke quotient, jokes per minute, went up mm-hmm. in Dave's tenure. Mm-hmm. Because it was more of a writer's room and squeezing as many jokes in as possible. Mm-hmm which is a curb thing. Yeah. That's what we do on Curb Your Enthusiasm, as many jokes as possible. And so that's one reason all the pauses, every frame you pull out makes room for another joke. If you get enough frames out, there's room for one more punchline. Wow. (laughs) I've always been fascinated with the joke telling and with the writing with Veep because I've heard conflicting things. There's a written script and then there's like an improvisational rehearsal thing that then informs that script and it gets locked into a final thing or how does that work in terms of the improv versus what's there and it's a living document so it's continually changing and after the read through they'll change it Mm -hmm. because they'll get a lot of information or performances or ideas from the actors Mm -hmm. and then on set writers are there watching every take and suggesting lines gotcha and Dave is the decider of what goes in to the actors. When there's a scene with Jonah or somebody, Jonah particularly, but when somebody's <laughs> going to be insulted and they know that's coming up the next day, Dave's assignment to all the writers is come in tomorrow with 10 insults for Jonah. <laughs> mm-hmm. 10 new insults. Right. So then he's got a, a basket of 150 <laughs> insults and, or what, however many, and then he narrows it down to his favorites. And that's what goes. Do the actors ever offer up ideas or they're just... Yes, but how do you compete with the greatest writers? Right. Mm. They're not... The actors are not writers. Mm -hmm. It's just not their strength. But occasionally, yeah, they come up with things better than anyone would have. So it happens. And where does that happen? Is it on set? Is it in read-through? Is there a rehearsal process? There's not a lot of rehearsal. I think they uh, get... They do a read-through of the script. The episode where the the actors had the most improv and the most input was uh, an episode i cut that was called kissing your sister okay and the conceit was that Catherine was shooting a documentary throughout the season and then episode nine was her documentary so we get to see what the result was of Catherine filming (laughs) interviewing everybody yeah and so in those cases it was all the actors pretty much fully improved an interview Right. With with them. And it was the most atro like no like new boundaries of atrociousness for the show and Catherine would be there and no one would care. Like even then <laughs> right. it was indifferent. Like Catherine, you're so annoying. It's like she just caught you, you know, committing treason. Like what <laughs> how could you not care? And then it's a documentary, so who's gonna watch it? There was so much footage on that episode, it was the longest cut of any episode. I think the first cut was like seventy two minutes. Wow. And ultimately we cut it down, you know, but a lot it could have been as long as you wanted. But all of it was, it was almost pure tangents. Right. It was very little story in that episode. Yeah. I want to get to this point where we're at the airport. And I felt like by design, the scene was cut in a way that we were close on her, uh, or close on him, actually, close on Dan and wide on her. Is that something that just happened because the performances were right in those takes? Or was that uh, a decision visually to create that scene? Partly it's random chance where they decide to cover the scene from, and they'll cover it so that they get the most production value. Yeah. You see, well, they paid for a lot of extras and a marching band and trucks, and they don't always have time to do a big turnaround. 
So they'll pick one direction, and that's where the wides are. And you get them, in this case, they happen to be facing out toward the airport, because what's different is we have a whole airport here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a real airport, so we better see the airport. And that's why you have the wide this direction and the tighter shot on Dan. Mm -hmm. So my goal is to ultimately be as have the scene be as elegant as possible, and so, so I'm not cutting between wide and close constantly. So sometimes it's wide, 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 then close, 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 wide, wide as opposed to wide, close, 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 wide, wide, close, where there's n- no elegance to it. Mm-hmm. But the elegance is secondary to where is the funniest and the best. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little different, I've been told by my assistants, in the way I approach things from the sound. I, I listen to the sound, and I cut a scene to just the best dialogue first. Mm-hmm. Then I'll look at the video, the visual, hmm. and try to make it flow elegantly. And because there's four cameras, I can just flip between angles. Oh, very smart. And then pick, let's say, wider here. And now it's time because she's confiding in him. Or especially when they start talking about abortion, it doesn't make sense to stay wide the whole time because it's an intimate right. thing that they don't, wouldn't want ever, the whole world, yeah. the press, to hear about. So dramatically, it makes sense to be yeah. tighter, obviously. But as always, as Dave's preference, Dave Mandel is... Stay wide as much as you can mm. because it's funnier. You can see what the actors are doing. And dr- drama is in the face. So mm-hmm. you get tighter on the faces f- for the dramatic moments. Okay, interesting. You said earlier the comedy is in the wide. Now you're saying the drama is in the face. So maybe that's a little takeaway in terms of how maybe people can like be aware when they're cutting scenes. Yeah. If you want to be funny, stay wide. But if someone's crying, get up close and you'll get much more emotional impact seeing empathizing with the facial expressions that you won't pick up in the wide yeah and then just because there's emotion doesn't mean it's drama right it could be a very funny emotional outburst which would fit maybe more with curb whereas veep especially this last season i mean there's real deep cutting drama (laughs) right balance with the comedy which was pretty amazing and must have been interesting to handle that's the best the best comedy is when it's a really serious scene and i try to keep things grounded as serious as possible I think the comedy gets funnier when it's real, when when the characters are connected to reality. So I'm I will cut a, I'll cut out jokes that are too broad. I'm always cutting out the things that are too broad, and sometimes Jeff Schaefer will make me put them back in because he really is attached to a really funny joke, and he'll sacrifice for a joke to get that great joke. But I think the jokes are funnier the more serious the scene is. Interesting. So even on the funniest shows being made ever, you're sacrificing comedy for the drama because that ultimately helps the comedy. My favorite example is Jaws. It's a really serious movie with hilarious moments. Right. And the moments are that much funnier by how serious and suspenseful Mm. the movie is. You're going to need a bigger bigger boat. boat. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Probably one of the most famous lines in history. Yeah. He's very upset Mm -hmm. and freaked out and serious (laughs) <laughs> but it's hilarious right <laughs> that whole thing of comedy it's like if you're stating the obvious it's just a right? it's a good line it's a great line yeah that becomes so much funnier because the scene is so connected to reality right because we don't see the fakey fish yeah that much i want to get one more cut in veep mm-hmm. right here and it's something that i feel like is like as you, as an experienced editor, it's something that becomes less and less important. But it's something that like continuity beginning editors <laughs> really obsess about. Yeah. And it's that moment where what's his name, Gary, right? Yes, is looking at the poster in the white with Selena, and then we're cutting to this shot right here. Yeah. And in terms of the continuity, his body is completely different. His emotion is completely different. Um, maybe. Talk a little bit about how that is for you as an editor. How do you arrive at a cut like this where it's just you're just feeling it, basically? Part of, Lee, part, part of what happens is that Dave Mandel wants to cut lines. And so he asks me, cut those three lines mm-hmm. or that, that one line. Now I've got to get from point A to point D without a jump that's going to bother him. And con- the continuity is not going to bother Dave Mandel or the audience. So I have to find a way to bridge that by cutting with motion and um, on the line or pre-lapping a little bit or post-lapping. or fi- just, I have to find the sweet spot in any particular cut so it doesn't bump you, even if the continuity is kind of wrong, mm-hmm. so that we can flow through it. Or in this case, what helps is the pacing, so we can rock it past it too fast for you to 
really for it to register mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. you. Hopefully, the, maybe the line will be funny enough. And as you see, when we cut to this close-up of Gary, he's in. Mo- he's he's starting a movement. Yeah. Which overpowers the lack of continuity from the prior shot. Yeah. Mm. So you're kind of throwing the the edit at that point. Yeah. And. That's something really powerful, and as as an edit, as you become more experienced as an editor, you like it. Just is very natural how you arrive at these edits. I try not to jump the line. I try yeah. to follow the rules. But in a <laughs> scene like this, or at a co- conference table in this wow, yeah. confined space, they're all sitting down. We know where everybody is. We're not confused mm-hmm. if we jump the line once we set the geography. Right. Which you said, the very first thing you said when we started watching this scene was, start with the wide, right? Here's where everybody is. Mm -hmm. Now we go in for the best performances. If it's confusing, if you're going to confuse the audience and that confusion is going to harm the comedy, then you got to stick with continuity. So it seems like the most important things for comedy are clarity and drama. (laughs) Clarity is is huge. But violating those rules are part of your toolbox. Mm -hmm. I remember in a movie called The Killer... John Woo's yep. film. Yeah. He would jump cut these two characters. Um, they're sitting on a log. One was a policeman and one was the killer. Mm-hmm. And they're talking after this shootout where they kind of were forced into teaming up with each other. They're opposites, yet they're the same. So he wanted to show they're basically different sides of the same thing. So he crossed the line. So they're both looking to the left on each shot in a matched cut. They're, they're positioned the same way. And it was John Woo's way of saying, look, they're the same person mm. by jumping the line and, and just seeing how that similar they are. Yeah. We noticed music in Veep. There's basically none. It's transitional. And then boom, these hard, fast hitting scenes. And yet in Curb, almost uniquely for situational comedy, I know there's a few scenes where you use music that really just makes the scene that much funnier by almost because it's that very classical tone that's then being pushed for great drama, you know, like, oh, just making like a dramatic moment funny by how over the top the music is. And the example I'm thinking of is one of the first episodes you cut for Curb. Not, never mind. It was, it was, it was a, a, a like the second season you worked on, the Denise wheelchair episode where he gets his Blackberry thrown in the ocean and then it kind of is zooming in on Jeff's wife who just threw it in. Susie Essman. Yeah. And you just had this really intensely dramatic, like where does that happen? Are you <laughs> suggesting that stuff or at what point the music passes it? Cause the whole joke's almost the music in that, you know, it, it is supporting it, but. Well, at first you have to learn the style of the show mm-hmm. and work within that palette. But even before that, before that, I think a scene has to work without music. Right. You can't use, if you need music to make the scene work, you've failed. Yeah. I meant more the moment than the scene, and, but yeah. Uh, in this, in the case of Curb, it's part of the show to the style of music, and it's all library music. Right. There's no composer. <laughs> it's the, these songs that have just become archetypal songs for the, the series, right. and there's just, a uh, here's the whole suitcase full of the usual cues. Which one are you going to season this shot or this scene with? Mm. Yeah. And they all work. You put in five different version a different song they'll all kind of add a make it funnier uh-huh make it more absurd i just think music used so well on that show and it's such basic music well partly it's because the show started as such a low budget show they didn't have money for a composer and they mm-hmm. started with library music and mm-hmm. now that li- that library is so identified mm-hmm. with curb no one else can use it yeah i without... see it every once in a while in the library i'm like what this is, sounds very familiar yeah you can't use right. it unless <laughs> you're doing a, a curb reference now yeah, yeah. I wanted to maybe spend that last part of this podcast to talk a little bit about aspiring editors and how can they, what would you give them as advice to arrive at being able to cut shows on HBO? What should they do now to get to that point? Make their own movies. Become a good writer. Study literature. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you got to know how to push the buttons, know the software, but that I'm, I'm at the mercy of my assistant. Mm-hmm. I know so little about the software and don't care. Mm-hmm. about the latest version of black magic or you know after effects i i just have okay i, I have my assistant track the tv screens yeah. and effects shots my job is to pick the creative moment the best creative takes i get hired because i pick the right takes mm-hmm. that's the main reason and i've got to hit at least 80 percent. i think if i hit less than 80 percent of the right takes 
I'm not doing my job, and they're they're not going home early enough. Mm -hmm. They don't want to have to replace all my choices. Gotcha. So partly, it's you got to have the right twisted sense of humor to begin with, and there's no... Either you're born with it or or, or you're not. Right. If you don't have the... Your sensibility has to match the show. Mm-hmm. Whether it's comedy or drama, you're going to want to work on shows that match what you would do anyway, who, what you're good at, what you like to watch. And people gravitate toward what they like to watch. And I've noticed that comedy is the thread amongst all my work mm-hmm. that's similar, and I've gravitated to comedy. A different showrunner may very well like different takes, but you're also just in sync with these, these people, which is helpful. Yeah, they're going to swap out takes for sure. They're going to come in and change some takes. But you have there there is an objectively better performance mm-hmm. in any scene. And if you're good at what you do, you know when it's a good performance. A good editor feels it. You feel it and and you build a scene with the best performances. Now partly it's knowing go to the last take and work backwards. Mm-hmm. See what they where they arrived and then I'm building the performances underneath, replacing syllables, improving enunciation. I do a fine mix of the audio before I send out an editor's cut. I've mm-hmm. seen editor's cuts with bumps and clunks and audio pops and digital pops, mismatched levels. That's amateur hour, in my yeah. opinion. I do a f- f- perfect, like a full mix because I think people perceive a scene or an episode, either it's working or it's not, and they'll feel like it's not working if you didn't polish it. Mm-hmm. The more I polish it, the less work they think they have to do, and the more they accept my choices. So part of it is, go f- don't half-ass anything. F- only Never present anything that isn't fully finished, even in a rough cut. Yeah. Because people they can't imagine, they cannot imagine what's missing yeah i always feel like either it's so rough that it's obvious or it has to be like it could be in a screening room right now agreed if you have something in the middle it always feels like the finished product but people are bumping on every little thing and they give you notes on things that aren't even problems at that point so there's that then when you are preparing a scene to show to somebody if you are on a reaction shot of someone's face and there's a pause an um or a you know you are an amateur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no excuse when you're on a reaction shot to have a pause in there of any kind be, or a mispronounced word because you can fix that. You can pull all that out because you're covering it with, with a cutaway. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. part of I mean, pacing, right? Part of pacing is getting rid of all the non-story stuff, the baggage, the word. When actors are struggling for their lines, the pauses are mostly actors trying to remember their lines. Mm-hmm. And so you get rid of it all. You know, looking at their mark, they do all these things that the actors do that we get rid of, mm-hmm. the, these ticks that they have, or lip smacks. Get rid of all the lip smacks, you know? A lot of actors, yeah. before they speak, it's like an announcement, I'm about to speak. You don't need to announce it. It, it happens on this podcast. I, I gracefully <laughs> cut it out for the, <laughs> for the listeners. <laughs> it sounds like this. It's a nervous. Are, are you tick. referring to me? Oh. No, I, I'm the biggest. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, you're aware, and so you know how to. The editing is is fixing your mistakes. Oh yeah, right? getting rid of your mistakes. So that's technique. But if I was an, if I, if I was interested in becoming an editor, I would say become a filmmaker. Okay. Make your own short films. I can't afford it. Well, make a sh- make a one minute film. You you can make. You have to make your own films. You've got to do everything. Write, act, edit, do the sound. So you learn storytelling and read literature Hmm. the one thing i wish i had done more of in college was take literature classes read more classic literature and study storytelling particularly story structure Hmm. read all the books on story structure story by robert mckee and save the cat they're all great they're all good it's good knowledge but you need to understand three-act structure the, the the hero's journey you know joseph campbell you have to know why audiences want their stories told to them a certain way formula is not a bad thing it just is a description of what is and what that's what is if you give an audience a story told to them in a way that they don't want their stories told to them they'll turn it off or it's an art film Mm -hmm. and that's you know european films are refreshing sometimes because Mm -hmm. they're violating that rule and it's kind of nice to violate that rule sometimes but if you're watching 
a movie and the inciting incident doesn't come until 15 minutes in, you've lost people. The best, best, most, a lot of the best movies and TV shows, there's a dead body in the first scene. Mm -hmm. It's start right into it. Mm -hmm. Get, start your story. So learn storytelling, no matter what job you take in filmmaking and particularly editing because editing is writing and it's rewriting. Great. Well, Roger, thank you so much for coming over here. And um, we'll do a new episode when Curb comes out, and we'll do an analysis <laughs> of the scene. Happy to drop by anytime. Feel free to not, but by <laughs> all means, we'd love to have you back. And I want to we'll come visit your bunny rabbits. He's got bunny rabbits here. <laughs> That's right, and that chickens. That was an unexpected chickens. bonus. Yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah, by you... then I'll have finished my uh, uh, new documentary, oh, and, and yeah, so yeah. we could talk about marriage. Well, Absolutely. also, love you've to. worked with like the gold standard of comedy. So Larry David, Judd Apatow, uh, Schaefer, Mandel, Mike Binder, and Odenkirk. And then, of course, the ironic one we didn't even mention was Sasha Baron Cohen oh, for who, who, is who is America, which is like yeah. we could, we, oh man, <laughs> we could talk about that. That I'm very curious to know in terms of what you're talking about documentary and, and falsity, but maybe we'll save it for another go. Great. Fair enough. All right, thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. To the listeners, thank you so much for checking in. Uh, come back next week when we have a new episode for you. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you to Curter for the music. And as Tyler always makes me Cheers. say, and I'm going to make Tyler say it now. Uh, happy editing? Or why don't we have Roger say it? Very good. Let's do that. <laughs> happy editing. Cool. Awesome. We'll figure out how this podcast works someday. <laughs>